details that are there. Um, we're not going to cover every detail that's there, but we're going to cover some details that I want you to know. And so we begin tonight uh, with the first 11 chapters of the Revelation, chapter 1. And in verse 1, he says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to, to him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John. Now let's just stop there for a few moments and let's talk about some things that are in verse 1. This word revelation means a disclosure. It means an unveiling. And you're immediately met with the first interpretive challenge of the book of Revelation. Is this a revelation that is coming from Jesus Christ? Or is this a revelation that is disclosing Jesus Christ to us? The word of, that preposition, can mean either of those two things. Uh, is it coming from Jesus and he's revealing these details? Or is it a revelation about Jesus personally and specifically himself? And I think the answer to that question is, this is a good political answer, it's both. <laughs> uh, there, there are places here where you're going to see a revelation of Jesus himself. As a matter of fact, at the end of this chapter where we will not get tonight, there will be a revelation of the person of Christ himself, a revelation of him that most of us don't think of unless you've read the revelation. It's uh, very starkly different uh, to what the Gospels tell us about Jesus. And uh, it's, it's sometimes even shocking as people read it. So yes, this revelation, this unveiling, this disclosure is about the person of Christ. But this revelation is also coming from Christ. These details about the future, things that are going to occur, things that are going to happen, he is also the source the father gives it to the son. The son gives it to his angel. The angel gives it to John. And John gives it to the churches. And so there is a sense in which it comes through Jesus, that Jesus is revealing this as well. So I don't think you have to choose one or the other. This is a revelation that comes from Christ. And this is a revelation that is about Christ and the program of Christ for the future. It originates with him all the way back to the Father. Uh, this message began with God the Father, and it goes through the Son and through the angel and through John. It did not originate with John, and that's the point that he's trying to make sure that all of us understand. It did not originate with John. Do you, you understand the signif significance of making that point? This is not John on the Isle of Patmos. Uh, you know, uh, he had a bad batch of pizza. And, uh, you know, he was having nightmares and he sat down and he wrote out something that he just had in his own mind. This is not what Joseph Smith did uh, in the founding of his false religion. This is not what, you know, others who have founded, you know, Mormonism, the Jehovah's Witnesses and all the others that have their extra writings that supposedly were received in some, you know, fantastic fashion. This is not John coming up with this. This is something that starts with the Father, that goes through the Son, that's given to the angel, that comes to John, that's given to the churches. It's about Jesus Christ, but it's also Jesus giving us details about things that, that are yet to come. He goes on here in verse 2, who bore, talking about John, who bore witness to the word of God 
into the testimony of Jesus Christ, into all things that he saw. To all things that he saw. You know, this is very reminiscent of something that John says in 1 John. Get your Bible out there for a moment, if you don't already have it. And look at 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And listen to John writing. Chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon. So he's seen, they've heard, they've seen, they've looked upon him. Our hands have handled, they were there touching Christ, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Do you get the idea that John wants you to know he's seen it <laughs> and he's heard it, right? This isn't some, uh, some fanciful dream that he's had that he's just made up out of the air. This is something that he witnessed, that he experienced, and that's what he's saying in Revelation 1-2. This Revelation, this disclosure starts with the Father, it comes through Jesus, it's given to an angel, it's handed down to John, and John delivers it to the churches. John didn't dream this up. This wasn't something that he imagined. It wasn't something that he wrote on his own. And on top of that, this is coming from a man who was an eyewitness of Jesus. This was a man who was with Jesus. John is the oldest living of the apostles. Um, he is the only one that did not, as tradition says, uh, we don't know how all the apostles died. We don't have scripture on how all the apostles died. Uh, but tradition says he is the only one who lived till the end of his life. All of the others died as martyrs. We know some of them died as martyrs because the Bible specifically tells us about their martyrdom. But most of them we know out of tradition that they died as martyrs. For instance, Peter. How do we, how do we know from tradition about Peter's death. We know that they say he was crucified how? Upside down. That's a tradition about how Peter died. And so tradition tells us that John was the longest living of the apostles. He lived way into the late first century. He, he would have been a man way up in his 90s, early or middle, maybe even late 90s, all the way to the end of the century. And it's at the end of the century when this uh, revelation is given to to John about Jesus Christ. This revelation comes from Christ to John. And this is something that John would have recognized. He knew Christ. He, he, he had been with Christ. Um, he, he was there when the miracles were performed. He was there for the resurrected Jesus. He was there at the ascension. He, he was there when Jesus uh, did all of these things and spoke all of these things. John would have recognized that this was, in fact, Christ himself who was bringing the message. This isn't, you know, not Moroni or some, you know, false angel that's showing up. This is, in fact, a consistent message with who the person of Christ is. And so he begins by just establishing where the message comes from, where this disclosure, this unveiling comes from. And he wants you to make sure that it was given to John, and John is the a great apostle of the Lord who is going to hand it down to the churches. And so you get the introduction, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. 
And he sent and signified it by his angels to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ and to all things that he saw. We trust the gospel of John. We trust the epistles of John. We trust the revelation that comes to us from John. Now, when you move into verse 3, you move into a greeting or into a doxology. You notice he continues, after telling us how this message comes about and that it's a revelation, a disclosure, an unveiling, he says, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. It's sort of an unusual feature here, but he, he says that if you, if, you, if you read this prophecy, if you hear the words, you keep the words, then there's a blessing that's pronounced on those who do so. Something that's interesting about this particular verse in this greeting, this doxology, the word reads literally refers to the public reading. In other words, John wrote down the revelation and then it was supposed to be publicly read to these churches. Why, why do you think that would be important? Well, part of the reason that was important was because there were so many people in that day who were illiterate. Another reason it was important was because there was no way to be able to copy this letter. They didn't have Xerox. They don't even have Xerox anymore here, do they? They didn't have whatever kind of copier it is. They didn't have copiers that you could lay it down on, on the, you know, the glass and push the button and, and copies would come out. Somebody would have had to sit down and carefully, uh, as a scribe, copy every letter in every word. And, and you can imagine how tedious that would be and how difficult that would be. And, and they obviously do that. That's why we have almost 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. But to be able to get the message to them quickly, to be able to get it to them now as the message is delivered, it had to be something that was read. Uh, it's said in the city of Ephesus that as much as 15% of the people who lived in the city of Ephesus were illiterate. Even if they had had a copy, they couldn't have read it for themselves. And so it was necessary for this to be a book that would be read, this disclosure, this unveiling from Christ and about Christ that came through John would be something that would be read publicly so that the people could hear with their ears what was being said and then they could obey and keep the things that were being said. And if they did so, uh, he said that there would be a blessing for those that did so. That's interesting. At the end of verse 3, he says, for the time is near. In uh, verse, in, uh, verse 2, uh, or was it verse 1? He said things which must shortly take place. You know, that almost sounds as if John is trying to tell us that, that the coming of Jesus could come immediately. Yes. Absolutely. We call it the imminent return of Christ. Uh, you know, people look at that and they say, well, in verse 1 it says he, he must come, it must shortly take place. And then you get over to verse 3 and it says he you know, it's going to, the time is near and it sounds like he's saying that it's got to happen within the lifetime of these apostles before they're dead. That's not what it says at all. The New Testament teaches us to live in the reality, with the reality that Jesus can come at any moment. And the interesting thing about what uh, Peter tells us is that God doesn't count time the way we count time. 
God doesn't live in time. You and I live in time. God is in eternity. God doesn't count days in weeks, in months. He, he doesn't count hours in seconds, in minutes, in the same way that we do. He says that a year is as a, a thousand years, and a thousand years a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as a day. And he's not giving you a time schedule. Okay, we've been, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus was here. Okay, that's one, that's one day. That's two. He's not giving you that. You know, a lot of people take that information and they say, okay, Mm, you know, we're really close to the coming of Jesus, and they use that to prove that we're close to the coming of Jesus. That's not what he's saying. He's simply telling you that God doesn't count time the way we count time. It seems like a long time to us, but when you dwell in eternity, it isn't anything at all. It's a short time. It's very near. As far as he's concerned, his coming is very near. It may seem far away to us, but it's very near to him. And it's interesting how he wants us to live, the New Testament wants us to live in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. Why is that important? Because living in the reality that Jesus is coming at any moment is a, is a comforting thought. It's a purifying thought. It's a, it's a reminder that Jesus, we should be looking for Jesus. There's a, there's a reward. There's a, a crown to be given to those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We should be living our lives, not with our heads down, but with our heads up, looking for Jesus that he might appear at any moment, first for his church and then to establish his kingdom. But we ought to be living in that kind of a fashion. It ought to always feel like to us that it's near. Uh, we watch the things that are unfolding before us, uh, even presently. And, and do you not get the feel that if the Lord Jesus came, you know, the circumstances are certainly ripe for his coming. Do you not feel that way? I mean, I, I live with that sense of, of you, know, you know, this is perfect, Lord. I mean, everything is set up. Everything is in place. We're, we're ready to go. But when the Lord is ready, he'll come. But we live with that ever sense of his nearness. And it may sound as if God is saying through John to these churches that it's going to happen in your lifetime. But what he's simply telling them is that you live ready every single day of your life. We should obey what it says. We should listen to what it has to say. We should heed the advice, the insight that it gives to us. And we should obey the instruction that we find therein. And so you continue in verse 4, and we pick up. It comes from, it's a revelation of Jesus that comes from God the Father to Christ, through the angel to John, to the churches. It has to be read publicly. Nobody will have their own private copy. Do you know how blessed we are? How many of you have more than one copy of the Bible at your house? <laughs> My, my, my house is a graveyard for Bibles. Um, I've got more Bibles of more different kinds of translations. I'm almost ashamed of myself some days. I have so many of them. I mean, we have Bibles that didn't have that in the first century. They weren't privileged in that fashion as we are today to be able to have those things. So the Scripture had to be read publicly. But by the way, isn't that what Paul told the young preacher Timothy? He said, give attendance to, what's the word? 
reading. And we're talking about the latest novel, the latest mystery. He said, give attendance. He was talking about the public reading of the Scripture. And why would you want to pay attention to the public reading of Scripture? Because God's people are listening. Many of them can't read it for themselves if they had a copy. And besides, they don't have a copy. The copies are in the process of being made, but it's a letter at a time. And so, Timothy, be careful how you read the Scripture. Make sure you read it properly. Make sure you read it so the people can understand it. Read it with the inflection of your voice. Make sure that you emphasize what's emphasized in the reading of the Scripture. And so, there's supposed to be the public reading of this revelation that's handed down through John to these churches so that they can heed what's said and so they can obey it and they can follow the instruction therein. Now verse 4 picks it up and he's going to tell us to whom this revelation is to be given. Who do we start with? God the Father. It's given to Jesus, comes to John, comes to the angel, comes to John, and then it goes to the churches. Now notice what he says. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from God who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The seven churches. And you notice they're in Asia or Asia Minor. If you don't know where that is, that's modern-day Turkey. Uh, Just go Google it. Put the seven churches of Revelation and then look at the maps. They'll bring up a section and Google it, has the maps, and you can see these seven churches, where they're located, and they're all over here in Turkey. Just across the sea, you've got, you've got Greece, you've got Athens. But these churches are located in that territory of, of Greece, and there's seven of them that he's writing to that are going to receive this letter. And he says that this letter is from him who is, who was, And who is to come. Do you like that? It speaks of the eternality of God. He is who was and who is to come. In other words, he's always been and he'll always be. God is an eternal being. He has no beginning and he has no ending. And so he uses that that phrase, who is, who was, who is to come, to indicate that eternality of his being. And then he talks about here the seven spirits. Some scholars say those are seven angelic beings. And they point to Revelation 8 too. I'm of the opinion that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. The sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit. By the way, you're going to see the number seven in the Revelation a lot. 54 times in 31 verses. You're going to find the word seven. It's over and over. You know why seven's important? Seven's the number of perfection. Seven's the number of completion. And the Holy Spirit is complete. You say, why do you you say that, Pastor? Why do you think it's the Holy Spirit? Well, because it's mentioned in a text where he's showing the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Notice verse 4 again, if you will. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, John of the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who was, who is to come, and from the seven spirits, verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, 
And in verse 6, and he has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. You've got the Father, you've got the Son, you've got the Holy Spirit. Why do you refer to the Holy Spirit as a sevenfold being? Well, look with me for a moment at Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah speaks of the Holy Spirit's sevenfold ministry. Isaiah, you know where that is? It's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 11. Listen to the sevenfold ministry of, of Isaiah, uh, or of the Holy Spirit from Isaiah. Chapter 11, verse 2. He says, The Spirit, and here's the first, of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom, there's two. Of understanding, there's three. The spirit of counsel, the spirit of might, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. And there's a sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit in, in Isaiah. I personally have the, of the opinion that this seven spirits who are before the throne is not a reference to the angels, though if you differ with me, I'm not going to argue with you about that. I just want to remind you that Revelation presents seven lamps and seven eyes, and all of those will be references to the Holy Spirit. It's my opinion that when he says here the seven spirits, that he's talking about this sevenfold ministry of the Holy Spirit that's found in Isaiah chapter 11. He goes on. You notice in verse 4, this is John of the seven churches. He goes on in verse 5, and he says, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own, his own blood. Let me stop here for a moment because this is all introductory stuff. Are you all still with me? Um, it's, you know, it's detailed. If you, if you get the book at the end of the study, you'll, you'll have all these details. It's interesting. There's three descriptions of Christ in verse 5. He's called the faithful witness. He's called the firstborn from the dead, and he's called the ruler over the kings of the earth. That threefold description is a reminder to us that Jesus is prophet, he's priest, and he's king. He's prophet, he's priest, and he's king. I want you to get your Bible out again, and I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 9. I want to show you a passage, just one passage, about him being the priest. Hebrews chapter 9. I love this particular passage about Jesus being our high priest. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11. And follow along with me as I read through a portion of this. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, if in the Old Testament what the high priest did when he went into the Holy of Holies and carried the blood and sprinkled it on the altar, if that was sufficient to bring cleansing, can you imagine what the blood of Jesus Christ does? Verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And if you look over to 
verse 21. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of, of blood there is no remission. Now before we read on, you know about the Day of Atonement, right? When they would offer the sacrifice that was on behalf of all of the people, the sins of all of the people. And the high priest would go into the holy place. He would go into the holy of holies where the Ark of the Covenant was found. And he would take the blood of that sacrificial animal and he would place it on the mercy seat. And he would follow the instruction that were given for the dispensing of that blood back there in that holy place where God came down to meet with his people. Right? Now what you have is Jesus Christ doing that in the heavenly tabernacle. You have him doing that in the heavenly temple. He goes on here, verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary that the copies of the things in the heavens should be purified with these things. But the heavenly things themselves were with better sacrifices than these. I mean, the high priest went back with the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus went into that heavenly into that heavenly uh, a place of, of, of atonement, and he went in with his own blood. How much better is Jesus' blood than the blood of bulls and goats? The blood of bulls and goats could cover sin. The blood of Jesus takes our sin away. He goes on, uh, verse 24, for Christ has not entered the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true. Verse 25, not that he should offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood of another. He then would have to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, Jesus, now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Amen. And as it's appointed for men to once to die or to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. Aren't, isn't that what we're talking about? To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Do you see what he's saying? In the fashion that the Old Testament high priest went into the Holy of Holies, that's the word I couldn't think of a minute ago, into the Holy of Holies, back where the, uh, where the Ark of the Covenant is found. You know what Indiana Jones has been looking for for so long? Goes back into the Holy of Holies once a year to take that blood, the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus, in like fashion, took his own blood into the heavenly Holy of Holies once for all, for no other sacrifice would ever be needed ever again. Isn't that great news? And so when you see this description of Christ, he's the faithful witness. That's him as the prophet. He's the firstborn from the dead. That's the resurrected Christ as priest and the ruler over the kings of the earth. That's him as king of kings. Jesus has this threefold ministry. Then I want you to notice this threefold description of believers. He loved them. He washed them in his blood, and he made them kings and priests. As you see the threefold description of Christ as prophet, priest, and king, you see the threefold description of you and me who have trusted in Jesus. He loved them. He washed them. He made them kings and priests. Now, here's something interesting. 
The words loved and washed are in the present continuous action. They're verbs in the present continuous action. He goes on continuously loving us. He goes on continuously washing us. Aren't you glad for that? But when he says says he loved us, he washed us, then he goes on, he washed us once for all time in his blood. I I just, I mix my words up here. To to him who loved us and washed us in his own blood, the, the washed is a present continuous. He loved us is the present continuous and the washed, I'm trying to find my note here, the washed is in the past completed. He loved us in the present continuous. It goes on. He never stops loving us, but he washed us once for all, for all time. I'm sorry. I lost my place in my notes. Once for all time, he washed us. Um, once you've trusted in Jesus, your sins are gone forever. Amen. Never to be remembered against you ever again. You pick up verse 6. And has made us kings and priests to his God. Now, what has he done? The one who was the prophet, priest, and king, who loved us and washed us in his blood, who made us kings and priests as well. well what's he done? He's made us kings and priests to his God and Father. He says to him, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Uh, he says he's made us kings and priests. You know what it means to be a priest? It means you have access to God. You don't have to go through a confessional booth. Sit and talk to somebody on the other side through a shaded window. You don't have to come to me and confess your sins. Though I'll listen. You don't have to come to me and confess your sins. You can go directly to God yourself. Is that not good news? That's incredible news. But then I want you to notice not only do we have access to him as a priest, but he says we'll be kings, kings that reign with him in his coming kingdom. Think about that for a minute. When the millennial kingdom arrives, one of the things that will be our privilege will be the privilege of reigning with Jesus. Now, I don't know all that that means. If it means that I get to be, you know, the, uh, the mayor of Huntington and the mayor of Barbersville, I accept. We'll straighten the place out. Right? I don't know all that that means, but I know that we're going to have responsibility delegated to us, and we will be reigning with Christ in his kingdom. And all of that's because he loved us, And goes on continuously loving us because he washed us once and for all from our sins. As a result, he's made us priests so that we have access into the very throne room of God. And he's given to us the right to rule with him in his kingdom. Did you know you're all going to be having various responsibilities and roles to play within the kingdom of God? The millennial kingdom. What do you want to do? What would you like your responsibility to be? You don't get to choose it for yourself, by the way. God will assign it. You know, if you've been faithful over a little, he'll make you faithful over much or give you much. God's going to assign that. But can you imagine kings and priests? 
And then he finishes out verse 6 with that doxology, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Do you ever just stop and think about God and just come to a place where you just find yourself pouring out praise to him? That's the right thing to do. Verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. And they also who pierced him in all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now he continues to give you information. Let me just back up here. I'm sort of one of those who likes to repeat. The message is revelation comes from God the Father to God the Son, to an angel, to John, to the churches. The people, some of them are illiterate. They won't have their own copy anyway, so they've got to have it read aloud so they can obey what it says. They can do what it says. He tells them that he's the king, he's the priest, he's the prophet. He says to them, look, you're you're washed once and for all and you're loved, ongoing, forever. He'll never stop loving us. And we're going to have great responsibility with him. But now look what he says. He's coming with clouds. That's important. When he comes for his church, he comes in the clouds. He's not talking about his coming for the church at this moment. He's talking about his coming to establish his kingdom on earth. He's coming with clouds and every eye will see him. By the way, we know that from Revelation 20 verses 2 to 6, but we'll talk about that when we get there. Every eye will see him Everybody who's living on that, at that day when he comes, they'll all look up and they will see him. They'll see the one they pierced. Now who is he talking about? He's talking about the nation of Israel. They were the ones who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. We know that these are unbelievers because the only ones who mourn through this book are those who are unbelievers. They will mourn when they see him. And he says, even so, amen. Verse 8, he continues, I am the Alpha and the Omega. By the way, the central message of the revelation is that Christ is coming again. That's the central message. If you don't get anything else, if you don't understand all the symbols and all the things that we're going to study in the coming weeks, the central message is Jesus is coming. As surely as Jesus came the first time, he's coming the second time. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega. We talked about that this morning, didn't we? The beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now I make a note here that there's no clear subject change in this verse, but apparently there's been one. And the reason is because the one we're addressing here is called the Almighty. And generally, that's a term that refers to the Father himself. He's the all-powerful one, the Almighty one. Where we've been talking about Jesus, now we're talking about the Father, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. And he's accentuating the eternal nature of God and his purpose and the power of God in this description of him. What does it mean when he says the Alpha and Omega? It means he's the beginning and the end. He's everything in between. I mean, he, he, he comprises everything. Uh, it's that, that mirrorism that we talked about this morning. 
I'm the Alpha, the Omega. Verse 9, he says, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation and in the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus. So where does the angel have to take this message that comes from Jesus and is about Jesus that had its origins in the Father, where does he have to take the message to get it to John? He's got to take it to an island called Patmos. We talked about that in the last lesson. The isle is off the coast of what is modern-day Greece. It was the place where they kept political prisoners. John had been living in Ephesus. John had been ministering in Ephesus. But the persecution was ramping up against Christians, and they wanted to silence John. And the result was that they sent him to this island in the Aegean Sea. But out there in that island, on that island, in that cave, he receives this revelation from the angel that came from Jesus, that came from the Father, and that ultimately will be given to uh, the churches. Uh, it, was the, it was the position I have here of Tertullian, who was an early Christian writer, that John's exile wasn't permanent and that he may have been on Patmos for up to two years. And then he was allowed to go back to Ephesus and he was allowed to continue his ministry. Again, that's not inspired scripture, but that's the tradition. That he was out there for a period of time, allowed to come back to Ephesus, and he actually died in Ephesus. Verse 10, I was in the spirit, John says, on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Now let's just stop here for a moment. In the spirit. Every time you see that phrase, it's very important in the Revelation. It introduces a vision that's given to John. Look at Revelation 4, verse 2. It's just a few pages over. Revelation chapter 4, verse 2. He says, immediately what? I was in the Spirit. So when you read that phrase, you, you know that he's receiving some kind of information, some kind of of revelation that's coming from God. Look at chapter 17, verse 3. Chapter 17, verse 3. You see it again. Chapter 17, verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit. In the spirit. There it is. Into the wilderness. Do you see what he's saying? Or look with me, if you will, at chapter 21, verse 10. It always introduces a vision that's given to John. Chapter 21, verse 10, and notice it. And he carried me away in the Spirit again and again when you see that phrase. And so what he's doing in verse 10 is he's giving John a vision, something that John's going to record. And what day is it that he's being given this vision? It's called the Lord's Day. Um, there are some who believe that the Lord's Day is the same as the day of the Lord. That's a prophetic reference to the Lord's future return. But it's more likely that the Lord's Day means exactly what we think of it as meaning. That it was a Sunday when he received this vision that came from this angel. There are additional early Christian writings that confirm this meaning. John could have used a very common phrase if he had meant the day of the Lord. He didn't mean the day of the Lord. He meant on a Sunday. The Lord comes to him. It's the Lord's day. Don't you love to call Sunday that? 
It's called the Lord's Day. He could have said the day of the Lord. He could have done that in a different way. There is a specific way to do that in the New Testament. He didn't say that. He said, this is the Lord's Day. It's the first time that Sunday is called the Lord's Day. And I want you to notice that he says he heard a loud voice, and here are two important words, as of a trumpet. I've told you from the beginning that we're going to interpret the revelation as literally as possible. But when you find words like as of or as it were or like, those are always words that are indicating that what he's talking about is something that's symbolic. When he hears the trumpet, he's not literally talking about a physical trumpet. He's talking about the voice of Christ that is heard with distinction. There's no mistaking. This is the voice of Christ that is speaking to him, that the message from whom the message has come to him. Verse 11, saying, here's what the voice says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, didn't we just say that about the Father? Now we say it about the Son. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. And he lists the seven churches. Again, if you look at Greece, excuse me, if you look at uh, Turkey and you find them on a map, Ephesus over here by the, is by the sea and then you're going around like a horseshoe. You're moving this way. They, they, they believe that he did this because God did this because this was the postal route. You know, we're, we're so spoiled. I mean, all of us get our mail at the mailbox, at our house. Well, on some days, <laughs> we all get our mail at our own house. We're talking the first century, right? <laughs> the mail wasn't delivered that way. You took it to a central location, and then it was read. It was distributed from that central location. What is the central location for these, or for the dis- distribution of this letter? It's these churches. And so he's going to go along this poster route, and he moves along these churches, and he's delivering this message. Now get your Bible out. I'm going to finish. Get your Bible back out. Revelation Chapter 1, we're going to read the first 11 verses with all of those comments, with even me losing my place in my notes. I want you to listen again as we read it straight through. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who were before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, 
And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the isle that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see right in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Now just catch verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. Wow. He turns to see the voice, and that's where we'll pick up next time.